please pray with me? We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us and your care for your people. Pray as we look at your word today that you would open it up to us and that we would hear what you have to say to us as a people in this place on this day. Thank you for this in your name. Amen. Amen. I was remarking to one of our staff members this week that our um, scripture readings over the past several weeks have been sort of like a greatest hits album. Um, You know, with a greatest hits album, they compile sort of all the favorites over time, and we have had that with our scripture passages. We've had Psalm 23, we've had John 3.16, we've had the call of Abraham, and we've had the passage last week about, um, do not let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. I would put today's passage in the same category. It's one of those very familiar passages that many of us have heard many times, and it is such a, a deep and rich passage that it's, um, there's something fresh that can be mined every week. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Abide in me and bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. We could probably spend the rest of the year on that summation right there. There are three things that I would like to do this morning. First, I just want to walk through the passage to help us understand it. The, um, the image I had when I was working with this passage this week is that it's actually like puff pastry. I don't know how many of you like puff pastry desserts, but they are one dessert with multiple layers. And this passage is exactly like that. It has probably about 20 layers. We're not going to get through all of those, but I'd like to at least highlight some of them. And then after we've walked through the passage, I want to just consider this image of a vine and a gardener, and uh, particularly what it tells us about the relationship of God to his people. And then I want us to consider one practical way to do what this passage tells us to do. So to begin with, this passage, John 15, is right smack in the middle of a longer section of scripture that started in John 13 and goes to the end of chapter 17, in which in the context of celebrating the Passover, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, for his crucifixion and eventual resurrection. And he prays for them, and right at the end of this section of scripture, he goes out, is arrested, and then we, we have been reading the rest of that story the last couple of weeks. This uh, passage, is, this discourse is, is called the Upper Room Discourse because there's an urgency to it. It's sort of the final summation of the things that Jesus thinks are most important before he leaves. And it begins in chapter 13 with the verse, Jesus knew that his time had come. It was time for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This whole section from chapter 13 to 17 is about God's love for his people and how best we can love him back. That's um, a very important frame for everything else that I'm going to say this morning. John 15, our passage for this morning, is the apex of this entire section. It builds up to it, and then after this part, um, it sort of resolves down through Jesus praying for his disciples. And this is perhaps his clearest teaching about his nature as Messiah and the nature of God's people being connected to the Father through him. It is the seventh and final of the I am statements that we've been talking about. Um, I think Father Daniel preached on one last week, and we've had some others. I am the light of the world. I am all these 
well, Deacon Tex is going to preach on those next, next hour, so just come back for that one. But the last one is, I am. And those are all references to God's revelation to Moses when Moses says, tell me your name. And God says, I am who I am. So every time Jesus says, I am, he is deliberately and um, explicitly invoking his identity as God. In this uh, particular one, to understand the passage, you need to know that the prophet Isaiah wrote about a vineyard. And if you read the book of Isaiah, there's six or seven different songs about a vineyard that teach the people of Israel something about their own heritage. And the disciples would immediately have gotten this reference when Jesus says, I am the true vine. They would be thinking Isaiah. Since that connection is a little less automatic for us, I want to read two short passages from Isaiah to help us understand our own text this morning. The first one is from Isaiah chapter 5. Um, this is the first, first couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 5. Um, first of all, the prophet is speaking. He says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. So Isaiah is going to sing for God a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower and cut out a wine press. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad grapes. And then God starts speaking. Now you dwellers of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? I will tell you what I am going to do. I will take away the hedge, and the vineyard will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So in this first song of the vineyard in Isaiah, we're told explicitly this vineyard is about the people of God, the house of Israel. And another translation calls the men of Judah his pleasant planting, which I just think is a lovely phrase. But here God has done everything he could do to care for his vineyard, and the fruit was rotten. In the next passage from Isaiah 27. The first one is a, a passage of judgment. They're about to go into exile. The second passage is a passage of deliverance. And this is a day we're, we're reading about a coming day of the Lord. So it hasn't happened yet in Isaiah's time, and we'll get to that with Jesus. See, the Lord is coming. A day of the Lord is coming. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march out against them in battle. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill the world with fruit. So we see in the prophet this progression that something is going to happen. The Lord is going to do something that's going to take the vineyard from a place of bad grapes and disappointment to a place of fruitfulness that is loved and watched over. 
And here is Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and the Father is the gardener. When he's invoking these passages, he's contrasting himself with a false vine that did not produce fruit. And the God who broke down the wall in Isaiah and sent the people into exile um, and made the land a wasteland is the God who in this context can now prune. He doesn't uproot the whole thing because the vine is a good vine now, it's the vine of Jesus. But if there are branches that aren't productive or need to be thrown into the fire and burned, those parts are dealt with. So there's continuity and again, um, the people listening would have gotten that immediately. It takes a little bit more work for us. So when in verse 10, Jesus says, remain in my love, he's saying that because the original vine did not remain in his love. The original vine, the original people of God, went looking for other gods. And that is, that's the whole reason that Jesus needed to come and die is because the original plan did not happen the way the Lord wanted it. So Jesus is saying, not only is he the fulfillment of the Isaiah passages, but that anyone who stays connected to him is part of the fruitful vineyard in Isaiah 27, that the Lord is going to guard continually and water. And I love that, that last sentence of that passage, the whole world will be filled with fruit. So now that we have that background, I want to just consider um, specifically the vine and gardener image. And the first thing I want to say about it is that the image is vine and gardener. Uh, often when we talk about this passage, we think of just the vine and we think about us in the vine, and that's not incorrect, but the image is there's a vine and there is the Father God who is gardening the vine. And that's important because this is one of the passages that develops what becomes the doctrine of the Trinity. It's where we see... Um, in the whole discourse, all three persons of the Trinity working together to bring us into Christ-likeness. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus' teaching is the way he takes familiar things and uses them to teach us deep theological truths. And grapes and grapevines are very familiar to most of us. I would like to ask if anyone besides myself has ever had to deal with a wild grapevine in their yard. Anyone besides me? Okay, a couple of you. So if you've ever had a wild grapevine, um, they, could, they could move me to profanity if, if we weren't in church. <laughs> they take over the whole yard. Once you have a wild grapevine rooted in your yard, you will never fully get rid of it. And it, it grows like wildfire. Wild grapevines will actually grow over trees. When I uh, bought my house two years ago, it had a well-established wild grapevine that was actually grown over this huge oak tree in my backyard and this huge maple tree. And what they do over time is weigh down the branches and block out the light, and they can actually kill trees much bigger than them. And so I had to go and cut all the roots of the grapevines and uh, wait a year or two for the wild vines to die and it's an ongoing iterative process. But when Jesus contrasts himself as the true vine, it's because there actually is a false vine, and he's making a distinction. False vine, or what wild grapevine is uh, the technical name for it, but it's sometimes called false grapevine, looks very much like the real thing and mimics the real thing. The key differences are it does not produce actual fruit. If you see the fruit of a wild grapevine, they're like itty bitty blueberries, but they're poisonous. You can't really eat them. 
And um, they, they grow very quickly, but rather than nurturing the ground, they suck the nutrients out. And over time, if, if not tended, they can actually kill both your yard and anything that they grow over. So one of the things that I take from this passage in this image is that there, there are vines that are not true vines, and we tell them by the fruit that they produce. If they're hard little um, sour things that cannot nourish you, that is not a true grapevine. If they are these rich things that we, we, we eat all the summer, at least some of us, um, that is a sign of a true grapevine. The other thing that distinguishes the true vine and um, a wild vine is that a true vine, to be fruitful, has to be tended. It, it has to be staked. It has to be up off the ground so that the leaves can get sunlight. You can't leave uh, a grapevine that you want to produce good fruit by itself. And I think that point is deliberate in Jesus's metaphor, that left to our own devices, even in Christ, we do not become the fullness of what we need to be. We need the Father Gardener to tend us and prune us in order to be ultimately fruitful. Because this is such a well-beloved passage, I have heard many sermons on it, and I found these sermons coming to mind while I was preparing. One of my favorites that stuck with me over time was a preacher whose main point was, be a grape. That was the application he, he left us with, be a grape. And his idea with that was that by abiding, we just, we just sit connected with God, and then we grow. And I love that image because it's easy to remember. However, I would say that's slightly off. I would say the biblical command is a little bit less, um, less visual than that. The biblical command is actually to be a branch. And what being a branch tells us is we are not the source we are not the vine itself. Jesus is the source. He is rooted. Anything coming to us as a branch comes to us through the source, the only source of Jesus Christ. And we are also not the fruit. We don't get to decide um, how the Lord uses us and what he grows in us. What we do is stay connected remain open, and the life of Jesus passes through us and produces in us whatever fruit the Lord himself determines. We actually don't get to decide a whole lot about our own faith, and if you've had the experience of walking with God a long time, you will find that. Instead, um, it's that attitude of dependence and honoring the source and the root, and making sure we are connected to the true vine, not the false vine. So really, the basic point of this whole passage is the primacy of abiding in God's presence, and that salvation comes from staying connected to Jesus, who is connected to the Father. And all of our self-effort, all of our attempts to be productive for God are not really, really the point. So the question then is how we seek to live that out. How do we abide in Christ? How do we be a branch? And there are multiple answers to the question of how. In John 14, which was our gospel last week, Jesus told his disciples that we show our love for God by obeying his promises, by believing in his promises and obeying them. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That's pretty straightforward. Other passages of scripture describe other ways of abiding, and they say things like resting in scripture, 
absorbing it, letting it fill you. That's a way of abiding. Or spending time alone with God in silence. Um, a passage we sing that I love, let all, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all flesh keep silence before him. That's a way of honoring the presence. But I want to spend the rest of the time this morning just looking at one, one way of abiding. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge up front first, there are multiple ways, but I'm just going to focus on this one. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that because one of our other readings this morning highlights it. I would like us to take a look at the psalm for the day. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, but if you want to just look at it in the bulletin, you can. And I'm going to give you one, one guess from the psalm what, what we might be about to talk about. <laughs> it's the word that appears over and over and over. Go ahead. You can say it. It's all right. Praise, praise. We are going to talk about praise as one way of abiding in God. And one of the reasons I wanted to spend my time on this, other than that, the reading suggests it, is because it's been a really long time since I've heard um, a sermon on praise. I think we assume we know what it is, and we assume we know why it's important, and intuitively that's true. But sometimes it's good to take things that are intuitive and call them out and reflect on them. So that's, that's why we're going to do this this morning. So actually defining praise can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, we praise children. We give them expressions of approval when we do a good thing. We also think about praise as to, um, to magnify something that's good, a quality or a characteristic that we think is uh, praiseworthy. So all of those ideas of noting the positive, reinforcing the good, acknowledging what is beneficial, those are all um, aspects of our praise of God. So really the sense in which I'm using praise today is, is to notice and pay attention to the good of God in our lives and to honor it and to reflect back an attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness for what we see God doing. So the first question is, why do we praise? Um, there's really sort of two pieces to that. We praise because we are built to praise. We are built to be in relationship with God. That is the natural way people were created. To the extent that we don't do that, it's because things have gotten in the way, our own sinfulness and our woundedness. But inherent in each one of us, we are wired to be responsive to God. And what are we responding to? We're responding to God's love. Praise is this iterative song, this God is loving us. We are, we are saying we receive that love and we love you back. And there's this, this motion in all of scripture. You see it most clearly in Revelations with the angels where they're going, you know, we love you. We love you back. We love you. We love you back. That's the essence of praise. So in Psalm 28, we are called the people close to God's heart. And in Psalm 29, which we, we didn't read, but which I like anyway, it says we praise in verse 4, because God takes delight in his people. God really likes us, and, and he likes being with us. And praising is our way of entering into that uh, delight that God has for us. It's a way of resting. And in this word of abiding, in that branch image, you know, there's not a lot of striving in that image. It's a restful image. It's restful connection. Most of us, uh, most of the time, are oriented towards the future. 
worry gaps. I think in our culture, that's natural. We're sort of told to be future-oriented. Praise trains us to shift our vision from the things that are uncertain, the things that aren't real at one level, towards eternal things that are real, towards the true vine. Praise reminds us that we don't, we don't do life ourselves. My talents, my achievements, my work, my family, my whatever we put my in front of is actually gift from God. And that part of abiding in God is, is resting in the assurance that he's got it. But we have to train our minds to think about it. So we praise because God loves us and we love him back. How we praise can be structured or unstructured. This morning, we're doing a lot of structured praise. In fact, if you caught it, I caught it because I was getting ready to preach on it. Um, right above the Pascha Nostrum, it says a declaration of praise. This is a structured liturgical form of praise that we said this morning together that reminds us who Jesus is and how much he loves us through his resurrection. Um, but there are also unstructured forms of praise, and both are important. What we do in the Sunday liturgy trains us to have an orientation during the week, but we also, during the week, you know, I, I wish all of you went with me all week, all the time, but once I leave here, I go back into my own life, and that's where I have to have patterns of praise myself. And those can be as simple as when I take a walk around the day garden, and I'm like, Lord, you did a good job. Like, look at those trees, look at those flowers which we actually, a couple of us did a couple weeks ago with the children. We, we took the children on a nature walk through the day garden and we're like, go, oh God, look at those flowers, look at those plants. And because if you don't know how to praise, you can watch your children. They're probably naturally a little better at it than you are. But so liturgy is a form of praise, but we also have our informal praise, which is things like noticing answered prayers. Noticing the gifts that God brings in a normal day. Were you discouraged and someone came that you didn't expect to see and they encouraged you? To give a response of praise to God of that as a form of provision. So our how is structured or unstructured, formal and informal. Psalm 148 shows us that all of creation praises. This uh, psalm, if you, if you were to hold Genesis 1, the Genesis narrative next to it, you would see that they roughly follow the same pattern. The, the days and the order in which things were created are the order in which things praise here. The sun, the moon, the heavenly hosts, the waters above the earth, and then the sea creatures, and then the fruiting plants, and then people. That's deliberate. <laughs> it's saying... All of created order, our first obligation, so to speak, to praise is because we've been created. When we forget to praise, we as people are at odds with the rest of creation. And this is interesting. A question I might ask Jesus in heaven is, did other parts of creation have the option not to praise? But we as people do. We get to choose it. And I want to read you a passage um, from Luke. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory to God in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. 
Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. There is a way in which um, scripture tells us, and I think it means it more literally than we sometimes take it. The rocks, the earth, all of nature sings the praises of God. And we can choose in our creatureliness to align with that or in our obstinateness to try and pretend we're, we're cut off. So what do we praise God for? We praise him for everything, but for three particular things. The first is our creation, which we've just read about. The second thing is our preservation. Any good gift in our life, anything happening now that you're thankful or excited about, any way you see God's goodness expressed in your life, those are matters worthy for praise. And the third thing we praise God for is our salvation. If you look in Psalm Uh, 148, all three of those things are in here. I've just told you about creation. In the middle section, you see how he um, supports the the mountains and the hills and the fruit trees. That's the part that's talking about preservation. But then in verse 13, he says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth. He has raised up for his people a horn the praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart. That horn is the term for salvation in the Old Testament. This is a passage referring to Jesus, that the Father has raised up Jesus to be the salvation for his people. And some of you who've been uh, in the Anglican church a little bit longer will recognize that tripartite praise, that we praise God for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life but above all, for the immeasurable love of God through the redemption of the world and our salvation. That's from a prayer called the General Thanksgiving that we pray regularly at morning prayer if you've ever had the opportunity to come Wednesday morning to our morning prayer service. So I want to close just by saying that praise and thanksgiving are closely linked because when we are focusing our attention on all the good that God has done for us, gratitude is the natural response. This week, I just would encourage us, you know, even as we go through the rest of the service, we will be doing a lot of structured praise, uh, to use this time to just think about what this week did the Lord do that was really good for you, and to think about um, just taking a moment more than, than you might not if we had not talked about it to praise and thank the Lord and to acknowledge his many manifold goodnesses that really uphold us every moment of every day, even when we're not in touch with it. I want to close by by praying the general thanksgiving because it's another one of those great gifts we've been given. Um, It's a, a written prayer of both praise and thanksgiving. And I would say, if you know this prayer, you are welcome to pray it with me. Um, if not, you can just rest in it and, um, and listen to this, this prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. 
And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. Thank you.